welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome to Great Shot Kid, the Nerd Party's podcast that looks at the inspirational, aspirational, and uh, motivational aspects of the Star Wars galaxy and its creators, both within and without. I'm John. And I'm Mike. And this week, we have a very special episode where I am going to be um, interviewing Mike about his reaction to The Last Jedi. And, I, you know, I was thinking about this. Other podcasts have reactions to The Last Jedi. I have a Mike Schindler. And I cannot wait to talk to you, Mike, about your reaction. Before I do, of course, we're on the Nerd Party Network. Go to nerdparty.com slash contact. You can send an email to us through the form there. You can go ahead and you can reach out to the network on Twitter at joinnerdparty, facebook.com slash thenerdparty, thenerdparty on Instagram. You know, those are all of the official channels you can reach out to Great Shot Kid. If you mention us on social media, please use the hashtag Great Shot Kid so that we know that you're talking to or about us no matter what it is. So, the template for this episode, I just so everybody has uh, a lens into it, there was a, a wonderful interview show some time ago called Shatner's Raw Nerve, which was beautiful and magnificent. And I could never hope to be as cool as William Shatner. But my hope with this is I had a somewhat lukewarm reaction to The Last Jedi. <laughs> but... I will say that I know that you, Mike, had a very strong positive reaction to The Last Jedi. Uh, if I recall, you gave it five stars on Letterboxd. I think that might be your only insight into my reaction because I've been strangely silent about it pretty much everywhere. I know, and that it, that you're absolutely right. And so that's why I want to talk to you about it because it it came out of nowhere. There are a lot of very strong negative reactions to this film. I wouldn't say that my reaction was strongly negative, but five stars is a statement. And when it crosses across, my first reaction was, I really want to talk to you. Five stars is the best of the best top. What is it about this film that puts it at five stars for you? Well, when I first rated it, it was for after I just saw it for the first time. And um, I, I was I was very much sort of like coming off of a high, you know, having just um, well, for one thing, eaten lunch at the Lucky Monk with their amazing cheese curds, and then watching Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens, you know, first as part of a, a double feature, and then seeing Star Wars Episode Eight, and you know, there's that hype factor for sure, and. You know, I, I was, you know, just sort of like completely enthralled by the movie. And, you know, I mean, I'm not going to lie, like, it's hard for me to not be sort of like emotionally invested in these characters in very, very strange ways. I mean, there were numerous times in, in the numerous times that I've seen this movie where like I'm tearing up because... I'm sort of like overcome with 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 emotion from what I'm seeing on screen, and then I, you know, to kind of stay, take a step back and think about that intellectually, and it doesn't really make any sense, but I can't help but feel that way because this is like literally something which I've grown up with, you know, since I was two years old, and I I can't help but be emotionally invested in it, and it's interesting because like 
coming out of the theater, my initial reaction, five stars. And then, you know, you start like trying to place it in context. You know, we're at the end of the year, so everyone's making their top 10 list. So where does it fall in, you know, with the, the, the best films of the year? And then you start placing it in context of the other Star Wars movies, you know, most notably the ones that just came out in the past couple of years and all this stuff. And as I'm doing that, like I'm having trouble and I'm like thinking like, this is lower than, you know, as I'm thinking about it, it's lower than I, you know, whatever. And later that night I had to go into work and watch it again. And part of it could be the fact that it was the middle of the night and that I was extraordinarily tired and part of it could be the fact that it literally just didn't hold up. But like on that second viewing, I was like, this is really not as good as, you know, as I thought. And my opinion of it went down and probably my star rating would have gone down as well. And then I started seeing some of the criticisms online and I started seeing some of the positive reviews online and I started seeing how those things were sort of like divided. And I mean, this is something which I talked about recently on some podcast and just the idea that there are, at least in my personal experience, you know, through, I mean, you know, social media is whatever you make it. And the way that I've, I've made my social media is there's basically like these two things, which I didn't think were separate, but I'm learning very much are separate. There's the nerdy, side of things and then there's the film side of things right and those two things don't really cross over too much and when you get something like a new star wars movie which does cross over you start seeing how these two different groups respond to it and it's very interesting to see how the the two groups respond to it in this case and you know, seeing the criticisms and, you know, the the praise on, on, on both sides has really sort of like made me think about the movie in a different light, in, in a light which I would have never necessarily thought about it. And there was, you know, one or two things that I saw. One little tweet that I saw in particular where... I mean, and this is always there. And I, and I thought about it, like, in the context of the movie, but I didn't think about it in such a meta way, even though I know everyone's talking about it. But it, just, it was the first time that someone had brought it to, to my attention, and it, it, it struck a chord with me. But someone was like, you know, Star Wars fans are upset about this movie, um, you know, not adhering to the rules of Star Wars movies, but, like, the entire, like, theme of the movie is about not adhering to, you know, the rules of the past or the texts of the past or or, or, or things which, which you should probably be letting go of and how you need to let go of those things in order to grow, in order to become something more and all that stuff. And when I saw that, I was just like, that makes a lot of sense. Like I need to see this movie again, like as soon as humanly possible. And I went to watch it again, 
fresh, you know, 12 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, completely. I went, I went to, and, and I mean, this is going to sound like a, a shameless plug, but whatever, I have nothing to do with this theater aside from, you know, watching movies there now, but the theater, which I used to be a projectionist at for years and years and years, the Lake Theater in Oak Park, I went to see it on screen number two, which is this gorgeous, you know, like a 75 year old screen. And, uh, you know, seeing it there in this movie palace was just kind of like this, this magical thing. Anyway, um, seeing it under those circumstances with this new sort of, I, I like watching it, you know, after seeing these reviews, I'm just like, it, like, it's so blatantly obvious, like throughout every single scene of this movie, like, how did I not pick up on this? And it's because I wasn't thinking about it. Like I think about most movies, I wasn't analyzing it the first time I saw it. I was just watching it because it's a Star Wars movie. And I was watching it to see what happens next. Not, you know, like what it means in the greater, you know, what Ryan Johnson was trying to say as an artist or anything like that. But then looking at it through that lens and also kind of like looking at just sort of like in a more analytical way on the whole, I was like, this thing is amazing. Like this thing is better than I thought it was the first time I saw it, you know, and, and it's definitely a five star movie and it's definitely one of the best movies of the year. And, and it's, it's fantastic, you know? So what was the, the question? I forget. I'm sorry. Well, I, no, I, I mean, you, you've, you've, I think very fairly explained how, you know, you started in one place, you get, get to another place and then you read something that has a unique take on it. And, it gets you back to that original place. Not, not even, I wouldn't even say that. I would say it's... Okay. I started in one place, and I realized that my, my initial opinion of the movie did not hold up. Really. The things that I loved about it were things which were kind of surface level, things which did not really work. But then on repeated viewings, I found things which I didn't even know existed that first time around. You know what I mean? I do. I um and the unfortunate thing is that any sort of reply that I give is going to sound weird, but I plugged into that theme that Johnson was throwing out there. And I'm not saying that to diminish that like well, well, I'm not saying it in that sense. You know that I'm not saying it in that sense. I'm yeah. saying like I picked up on his whole thing. My issues and you and I we've had movie discussions, film discussions about everything from screenplays to structure to cinematography to all of these sorts of things for years. And I look at this and I've been looking at it as dispassionately as possible, even from the first viewing. And I didn't have a problem with the story beats or the themes. I know that there are star Wars fans out there that are upset that this or that happened. And it, none of that really upset me. What bothered me and still bothers me to this point, and hopefully maybe you can address this for me, is that I thought that what I'm calling the B-plot, I thought was just a mess. And I thought that it didn't carry through to make any sense within the context of the film. What I mean by that is, you don't see, obviously, the same disparity that I do. Maybe you can help me resolve that, because... I look at the Luke and the Ray and the Kylo Ren stuff, and except for the fact that I didn't care too much for some of the jokier moments, but not because I don't like jokes, 
but because I thought that they undercut some of the the tension and stress of the characters. But then we have this resistance escape plot that I think is so reliant on people making bad decisions that it kind of drives me insane. And I think that it robbed any menace that built of the first order in the force awakens, I think is completely absent in this film. I felt no menace from them at all. Is this something where you, you just don't see that or I'm looking at it in a different light than you? I mean, I guess I don't necessarily agree with, with that. I mean, I, if, I mean, I definitely liked the, the sort of like resistance, you know, subplot a lot. I mean, you, you could get into the sub subplot of, you know, Finn and, and Rose and, and talk about that, which I have some issues with, but uh, on the whole, I, I can, I can accept, I mean, there's some good stuff in there and some not so good stuff, but uh, on the whole, I mean, uh, the resistance supply I thought was great. I mean, I just keep thinking about Laura Dern and how amazing she is, you know, I mean, see, that's that, that to me is something to, to hold on to is I didn't get amazing. I, I, I like Laura Dern fine. I think she's a good actress, but I didn't think that she was a particularly well-written character. In this, And in fact, I found her to be an unnecessary substitute for Leia. Like her character didn't need to exist or could have existed in some other way because she's this stand in for Leia when Leia is written into a coma, essentially. And like it just doesn't it doesn't play as well as it should. Like, her character seems so unnecessary on one level, but then let, let me give you the biggest thing about the Resistance subplot. And I, I'm not the only person that has brought this up. Maybe you, you can give me some insight from your perspective on this. How do you answer the criticism that everything with Finn and Poe and Rose is resolved if Vice Admiral Haldo simply looks at them and says... We've got stealth technology, and we're going to sneak away while they're bombarding this ship. I think that my response to that is, you know, as as someone who is a military leader, she's not going to be sharing this information with the grunts because it's extremely sensitive. And if word gets out through one of those grunts, it could destroy their entire plan, which is literally what happens in the movie, right? <laughs> Wait though. What? Who is on these ships besides resistance people? Is there anything in the text of this film that leads you to believe that there is a spy on board or that they suspect a spy? I mean, I I would be curious to ask someone in the military that question because I would be curious to see what it would be like in reality. Because you have to keep in mind like even though they are the main characters, even though they do have the ear of Princess Leia and whatnot, they still are, you know, essentially the equivalent of, like, enlisted, you know, soldiers. And, you know, I mean, the, the one guy was just demoted for insubordination. Like, they're not the type of people who you would be sharing the, this information with. They don't need to know. You know? But... That simple decision not to share the information then gives us the sub subplot. How do you resolve 
the fact that they meet up with a character who, you know, essentially screws them over purely by chance. They go there and they get arrested and they get thrown in a cell with a person who manages to hook up with them just to turn them in. Like you don't see a sort of like fundamental structural flaw. Like there's no reason for it to detour into that. And I mean, I, I you don't find the Canto bite stuff extraneous or could have been resolved at the script writing stage. I think um, a lot of the Canto bite stuff, while well, well, maybe uh, overdone at times, and maybe maybe a bit too long here and there. I think you know, and, and I've heard criticism like it doesn't advance the plot. You know, like what what are you doing? Like, because I mean, like literally, they go through all of this stuff, and then you get to the end, and everything that they did ends up not working you know and well not just not working but leading to the death of hundreds of their compatriots right right and and i think that that's kind of well in one way like the, the lesson to be learned but also i think that what it does is it even if it's not like driving the plot forward it is driving the theme forward in a lot of ways i mean a lot of the stuff that they're doing is sidebar stuff but I mean, like, if you were to see it in a TV show, would you necessarily consider it to be extraneous? I don't know. And, like, I mean, yeah. I, I, do, I do think that, that it is problematic in a lot of ways, but, I mean, you had to get to a point. It, you know, I mean, like, like if, you're, if you're, you know, breaking the story or whatever, you've got to hit certain beats. And to say, like, oh, well, this is how we're going to hit this beat, like, I don't have a problem with that. And, you know, it's not like everything is going so well, you know, and, and, and like it's a flawless plan aside from this little thing. I mean, the entire time they're saying, like, this is probably not going to work. Like, we are probably all going to die, right? But we're going to make a run for it because, hey, we got nothing else to lose. And then when it doesn't work out exactly as planned, they're kind of like, yeah, well, you know, that's kind of what we thought was going to happen. You know, we thought that we were going to all die here. And for them to just come up mm. about it in, in this particular way, which is, you know, rather exciting and everything like that and allows you to explore, you know, th the character of Finn and the character of Rose and, you know, kind of, in, in I think, a lot of ways, like, look at what's going on in the universe outside of the little bubble which we're in, you know, it, it expands, you know, kind of like, like the story to, you know, so you can see like what it is they're fighting for. And I mean, I think that all that stuff is valid. Is it executed in the best possible way? N no. You know, I mean, could you cut it out if you wanted to? Yeah, but I don't necessarily see, that's, have a problem that's, with it. That's the thing that I, I keep coming back to with, with your reaction, but but I want to take one detour before we, we even double back finally to that. The First Order comes across as having little to no menace in this film, even though they're on the verge of wiping out the Resistance, supposedly, because they sit there and they just lob missiles. Now, I did read an article uh, the morning of the day that we're recording this, and of course this 
has now spread like wildfire. And, it, and I heard somebody parrot it back to me by the afternoon that this central chase is, in the words of this one article, like Mad Max Fury Road, which I find to be such a stretch as a way to justify its existence in, in a story sense because there's no... Like Mad Max Fury Road, yeah, they're they're on a long chase, but there's harassment of them beyond what happens here. Like they're, you know, if you wanted it to really be like Fury Road, you'd have fighters going out there and, and bombarding them and, and and harassing them and and causing more mischief because there's obviously no reason to hold them back, really. Uh and aside from that. Hux, do you like where they took his character in this? You don't feel that it worked against the idea of the First Order as in any way a threat? As, as far as the Mad Max Fury Road thing is concerned, I, I don't think, I think there's a way to take that. <laughs> and I think there's a way that it's being taken. You know, I mean, like, I, I hadn't heard that up until now, but the way that I see that, like, Someone says it's like Mad Max Fury Road, and, I, and I'm like, yeah, I can see that. And like, if you were to just say, like, this chase is like Mad Max Fury Road, right? If you were to just say that there's a chase in Star Wars Episode Eight, The Last Jedi, which is like Mad Max Fury Road, I'd be like, really? And I'm expecting, you know, junkie XL music with the violins, <laughs> and I'm expecting, uh-huh. you know, the polecat guys, and I'm expecting, you know, motorcycles, you know, flying over, you know, X-Wings and dropping bombs on them and everything like that. And and that's what I'm expecting when you say that, right? But mm-hmm. if you say, no, see, the chase is like Mad Max Fury Road. And then I think about what the chase is and what the chase in Mad Max Fury Road was. I'm like, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. And that, you know, like from a distant point of view, not like in the context of the movie where it's like, you know, the intensity of the Mad Max Fury Road, you know, chase, but in terms of like the logistics of what's happening, it's like, yeah, that is like Mad Max Fury Road, you know? I mean, I can see that. It's very similar to this thing that I can't talk about yet where... (laughs) (laughs) there's a movie which is coming out and no one really knows anything about it and there was a lot of online you know rumors that this movie is like an art house version of this other movie which is definitely not an art house movie and everyone's like oh what's that gonna be oh i can't wait to see that you know and then i watched the movie and i'm like no, I see what they're saying. Like, everyone's like, no, it's not that at all. But it totally is that, just in a completely different way, like bare bones, like just sort of like skeletal structure. It really is kind of the same thing. And that's the comparison that they're making. I'm, they're not trying to say, like, this chase is on the same level as Fury Road. This chase rivals Fury Road in terms of its, you know... No, they're just saying, like, it's kind of similar in that they're, you know, they're just running away, and then there's these people who are just, you know, this massive army which is, you know, chasing them and just can't catch up. And the idea is, like, sooner or later you're going to run out of fuel and then you're screwed. You know, that sort of thing. I, I see that. I totally, totally see that. 
I don't understand the point which was trying to be made because I guess I don't know what the context was. But yeah, I see how that's a well. Thing. I think the context is something that happens a lot with uh, you know when when a film, especially a big film that somebody likes, endures a fair amount of criticism. People like to throw things up to say, "Oh well, this it's like this." It, it, it's almost a, a way of of transferring credibility, but I, I, I do. I want to hang on this Hux thing. Okay, yeah, sorry. We did, didn't get to the Hux thing. With, with, with Hux's comedy, uh, I, I've, I've said elsewhere, he goes from this proto-space Hitler psychopath to, I'm calling him Jar Jar Brody in this film. That really undercuts everything any sense of menace I'm feeling from the First Order. I guess, here's the thing. I mean, like, if I'm being completely honest, do I ever feel a sense of menace from any of these things? Not really, no. And they all are sort of cartoonish, you know, sort of like stereotypical, you know, Nazi proxy type of things. And for, I mean, Hux was one of my least favorite things about Force Awakens because it is so over the top and it is so cliche and all that stuff. And for them to just start it up right here with that, you know, very, very, you know, sort of comedic, um, almost 21st century type of, you know, um, sequence. Your mama joke. What was that? Your mama joke is what you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, right. To start with that, I think is kind of awesome. Like I know people, I know you have been critical of the humor in in yes. this in this movie. I love it. That's one of my absolute favorite parts. And I mean, because this is another thing. Like I don't know. I, I just watched all of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, and I've been reading a lot of his interviews and everything like that. And I just find it absolutely hilarious how like you look at his stuff. Like there will be blood, and you're like one of the finest American films and, and, you know, and I totally agree with all that. Right. But like, you look at these things starring Daniel day Lewis and, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman and, and all that stuff. And it's so serious. It's the whole thing is so serious. And then, you know, you read an interview with him and he just thinks it's the funniest thing ever. Like I, I seriously believe that he sees all of his movies as comedies. Right. And it's like when you read that stuff and then you go back and you look at something like There Will Be Blood, you're like, this is hilarious, you know, in like a weird way. I mean, that last scene in, in There Will Be Blood is hilarious. And I just love the idea of sort of like undercutting, you know, this very, very serious subject with humor. Because, I mean, is it any less effective? I don't think so. You know, I, 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 I think it's it works perfectly well, and and that's really what he does. Not just with Hux, you know, not just with the First Order, but with the franchise. I mean, I think that you know is part of the whole thing of you know like 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 you know throwing away you know what you know and 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 moving forward and not being afraid to break the rules and move into new territory and everything like that. And it, it works perfectly well for me. I mean, I don't know. Did people have a problem with Yoda in this movie? Like saying things like, you know, page turners, they were not because I, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay away from the Yoda scene specifically because uh, 
I think that's one of the structural things that I would hammer on hardest is that the scene is unnecessary and in fact robs Luke of having a personal enlightenment moment. Let let me let me give you an example and see what you think of this. I'm going to go to Unforgiven. Okay. Or any really western, yeah. you know, where where the outlaw has to come back. Yes, there's somebody like Ray or there's somebody like this that comes and talks to the guy and the guy's like, "No, I'm not coming back. I'm not going to come back." And then he has that moment where he says, I got to come back. No, I've I've eschewed my my duty. I must come back and I must make a difference in the world again. And that is always a very personal moment. It's a big crowd pleaser type of moment. It's a great moment that I think people look forward to in films where the, the old retired hero has to come back into service. And... I mean, I, I want to bounce this, bounce this off of you. That Yoda scene takes that away from Luke. It has somebody deliver the message to him instead of having him have the maturity to arrive at the conclusion on his own. I guess I don't see that, and I guess I don't see the problem with that either. I mean, he's in a dark place. He needs someone to help him get out of it. You know, I mean, I think lots of times you find that in, in other places you know and, and here he finds it in in yoda and i i think that 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 works perfectly well i don't he there was nothing that daisy ridley did that could just have justified his you know the ice cracking his, his heart melting and turning from stone i'm sure i'm sure there there is stuff that she did which which could do that but i think having Yoda come in and and tell him this and tell him it in a very like irreverent way like we're talking about is you know I, I think that hits hits the point home too I mean I guess I don't know I don't see I, and maybe it's just that I'm kind of sick and tired of those moments I don't know you know but I, th- this was like extremely effective you know and and I think that in a lot of ways, you know, just like with everything, it's like Yoda wasn't just talking to Luke; he was talking to all of us. And of course, I, yeah, I I I, th- I thought it was good. You know, I think it's I don't know. I I didn't have a problem with that at all. I would never well, once would have considered that to be a problem. I find I find it interesting. Um, you know, as, as we're sort of like you know closing the end of the interview here, I find it very interesting that your arc with this your viewings of the film seems to be anachronistic from most of the others that I've encountered where a lot of people have come out like me where it's like, Oh, there are things I really like. There are things I didn't like. I didn't think structurally it holds up or I didn't really like the way that they had Canto bite and, and those sorts of things. And just having those sorts of criticisms. And then I have not seen the film a second time, but I've spoken to a lot of people who have said, and then when I saw it a second time, I liked it a lot more. Whereas you went from, top of the mountain to off the top of the mountain to back on the top of the mountain. But what I want to ask you about is the third time you saw it was after you saw this, this read that somebody brought into it or, you know, opened your eyes to, as it were, isn't it possible that you're having, and I'm going to put a little trademark and copyright on this because this is a very personal thing for me, the Star Trek five effect where, once you see the themes they were going for, you're willing to look past a fair amount of structural and story flaws with the film because you like what they were trying to say. 
And I don't say that to say that The Last Jedi is as bad as Star Trek V, not by a long shot. It's to say that a lot of the way that I've come to love Star Trek V personally is that I, I remember reading materials where Shatner and Harv Bennett talk about what they were saying with Cybok and what they were trying to do. And so I look at it through a different lens. Do you think that it's possible you're back up at the top of the mountain that you could go on a roller coaster and this thing is going to sort of go up and down depending on moments in time for you? The difference that I see there is you can have William Shatner talking about what Star Trek V is supposed to be and everything like that. And then you can watch Star Trek V and be like, I see how he was trying to do that, but that didn't really work at all. Whereas in this case, you know, I hear that and I think, ooh, that sounds interesting. I'm really going to have to watch for that next time. And then when I watch it, I'm like, this is so blatantly obvious that I'm really kind of embarrassed that I didn't see this the first time I saw it. You know what I mean? It's not that they're trying to say something. It's that they did say something, you know, and everything in the movie supports that that theme, you know, like literally every single thing, whether it's, you know, the structure, whether it's the humor, whether it's the literal dialogue, which is just flat out, you know, said. And 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 here's the thing about, I mean, it's, it, it and, and this is, maybe this is something which just kind of delights me in a perverse way, in that like the people who are like the strongest critics of this movie, I think are the fans that really, really sort of like reject how different this movie is. And that's like literally what the message of the movie is. Like you should learn to accept this stuff. Like I, I love that in, in, in a weird perverse way, but I also I, feel see, like that theme applies to life. I mean like everything, like literally, you know, everything that we deal with personally, you know, science, religion, politics, art, Star Wars, you know, I mean, really, and this is also something which George Lucas himself has been trying to tell us for like the past 40 years, you know? See, I, I, I find it, I find it interesting that we go there because, uh, but my first, you know, just a quick tangent before I get to a last question here is as somebody who episode three is his favorite who loved the prequels from the beginning has and has withstood a barrage for 20 years from a whole lot of you a-holes out there in the world (laughs) for his love of the prequels Uh, like i you know like like there's a whole philosophical thing i could go with because i find that there's been a shoe on the other foot scenario here where People who like these encountering people who don't like them has actually been more energetically negative in their responses to people who don't like him, like them, like, like things have flipped around where when I liked the prequels, I was under a barrage from these same people that like the sequels and it's like a shoes on the other foot thing. They're getting very defensive of what they enjoy and they don't see the irony that I'm standing on in in the fence between going like, really? 
this is history repeating, guys. So you've for, you know forgetting the past, you're doomed to repeat it as as the old thing goes. But my final question here is to you: for somebody who picked up on Johnson's themes, who picked up on what he was trying to say in that first viewing, and still has these, you know, somewhat sizable problems with with the execution of the film. What do you think is at, at play there? What What is at the core? If you were to sit back and armchair psychoanalyze, for instance, me, what is it? What is this bridge that I cannot cross here where I can't? What What is it that I'm missing in your opinion? There's no there's no pressure here. Don't, I don't want kid gloves. I don't want you to try to, you know, be gentle or anything like that. But I'm curious. What what is the bridge that I'm not crossing? What can I not see here? As far as the themes or or what? As far as considering the themes enough to overcome what I consider to be my dispassionate criticisms of a film in general. Okay, this is just, I mean, so so you're asking me like what, why I think you reject it? Right, like somebody like me who's having trouble, what would you say to them if they're considering a second viewing? What would you say to them to consider going into it to maybe get them across that chasm to see what you see in this film? Well, I, I can speak to what, what it would personally be for me is to, because, I mean, here's the thing, right? And here's the other thing. And we didn't, we haven't talked about any of this stuff, but like you talk about like, or if we were to talk about like the photography and the editing and everything like that, this is a very different movie. It looks different. It's structurally very different. There's weird flashbacks and everything like that. Things we've never seen before in a Star Wars movie. And I know there was a lot of rejection of that as well. I think that's one thing which people really, really didn't like about these movies. Now, now one thing I will put, I will, I will put out there is, I, I, I want to qualify that I have no problem with them introducing flashback. In fact, I found it delightful yeah. because Star Wars films add one new visual tick with each iteration that expands the visual language of them. Yeah, so, and, and I don't think that that's true for you personally because, I mean, even like before the thing came out, like I sent you a thing where it was just like literally it was like a, a note to the projectionist that said like, there are three seconds of black like in this movie. It's not a mistake. It's actually supposed to be there. And you're like, ooh, I like how they're trying something different, you know? So I don't think that that's necessarily applies to you. But, like, I've seen that criticism. And, you know, when I first saw it, I was like, ooh, that's a little weird. That I Like, if I were making, like, an episode movie, I don't think that I would be brave enough to do something like that. But the fact that they did it here, the fact that they were willing to mess with that a bit kind of goes into this whole thing. And I think what I would say to people who, and and, and this probably doesn't apply to you, I just think it's a a general thing, but what I would say to people who um, didn't like it the first time around, I would probably say, let go of what you think a Star Wars movie is and accept it on its own terms or try to accept or look at it on its own terms, you know, and see what you think about it on its own, which I think also has a lot to do with why we're seeing this divide across, 
you know, these party lines of nerd and, you know, critic, right? Because critics are not, like, they don't know, you know, necessarily, I mean, obviously there's crossover here, but like, generally speaking, you know, I mean, does someone like, you know, you know, Gene Shalit know the, the, the visual grammar of a Star Wars movie? You know what I mean? Not that he, he couldn't identify it, but just that he doesn't obsess about it, you know? Whereas someone like us, you know, we're like, oh, that's, how did they get away with that shot? These, these scenes look very desaturated and grainy. I don't understand what's going on here. Is this a Star Wars movie? You know, whereas like critics are just like, well, obviously you'd have a flashback here because that's just good visual storytelling, you know? And uh, that I think is, you know, kind of like a thing. And that's something which, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, online too, is like fans are judging it as a Star Wars movie. Critics are judging it as a movie, you know? So there, there's that. But I mean, all of this sort of like leads into, I guess, just the, that whole thing of like letting go of expectations, letting go of, of, uh, and I don't mean expectations like I think this movie is going to be really good. I mean, letting go of what you think the movie is going to be. Like, because there's also, obviously, everyone's talking about how, you know, one theory is that fans are disappointed because they've spent the last two years, you know, giving their dumb Snoke theories or their dumb Ray parent theories. And then this movie comes in and it's just like, whatever, who cares? And not, not in that, you know, but just like, I mean, like, I, I think we had this conversation where, you know, I was like, I think that Snoke is just going to be a random person. You know, he doesn't have some sort of huge backstory. He's playing a purpose in this story and that's all that we know about him and all that we're going to know about him he's not going to be someone's dad or anything like that and ray's parents are not going to be because who could they be that would be satisfying could they have said anyone where you were like oh Oh, but but see that this is this is where i'll this is where i'll throw the snoke thing back at you here is everything that is happening in the force awakens and the last jedi is because of snoke Mm mm-hmm to have no framework for him outside of he wears a bathrobe and is strong in the dark side of the force that that's not even that's not, i mean as a star wars fan that's very frustrating but i think again speaks to the issues that they're having overall uh as this as the series goes forward and to and to speak to letting go of your expectations of you know the film as a star wars film I mean, I can assure you, and we agree, the Canto bite thing's messy, this doesn't quite work, the Finn and Rose thing is a little off, and, you know, Rose taking Finn's heroic moment away from him is kind of point. No, it's fine. It's kind of pointless. I'm okay with that. Let's do that all the time. Okay. So you're you're okay with that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Okay. I mean, maybe that's the bridge. Maybe that's the bridge, is you're okay with that, but even if this isn't a Star Wars movie, if you remake this whole thing and you take the Star Wars people out of it, because I think that somebody could throw it back and say, you're so open to Star Star Wars being broken and rebuilt that that is what your positive reaction is based on, whereas I'm fine with them redefining it because it's obviously a different era. The prequels redefined what Star Wars was in their own way as well. And I'm and then the Clone Wars redefined things. Redefinition happens as, you know, the the story goes forward to stay fresh. 
But if this were the fifth element too by Luc Besson, I'd probably hammer on the same structural issues that I am now. Okay, just regarding the whole Snoke thing. And I mean, let me preface this by saying that from the minute I saw Snoke, I could not have cared less about this character, right? I mean, like he serves a purpose and I think that that purpose is, you know, very well served and now he's gone and may he live forever in our memories. But is there anything about Snoke that we know or don't know less than we knew or didn't know about the Emperor in episodes five and six. This winds up becoming, I think, a a huge sort of um sort of discussion at that point, wherein the Emperor is mentioned in the original Star Wars, and then, you know, you see his hologram, and you know that Vader, this person that has been accepted through these films as the pinnacle of evil, kneels before him. And so the Emperor builds. And I also don't consider that a necessarily fair comparison because these films are designed to build on the stories that came before. And... So if they came out with a fourth film immediately after Return of the Jedi and they were to say, eh, yeah, well, you know, and they discard a couple of story points here or there, you would, I think, rightfully say, well, how did you get from B to C or, or E to F here? Like, they're, they're you know, it, it seems a bit of a cheat. These aren't existing in a vacuum the same way that the world building of the originals existed in a vacuum. And so that, I mean, that would be my, my comment. Also the fact that Vader is more of a central figure until return of the Jedi. The emperor is this vague thing that is addressed. And in fact, well-documented Kurtz did not agree with Lucas's decision to bring the emperor in in return of the jedi because he thought it diminished vader yeah and you know of course you know you can debate that back and forth about whether that's true or not um but there there is also um uh, and I, you know and i said this elsewhere empire i understand i don't need more explanation than empire and emperor. I know what both of the, those things are without explanation. Whereas these things that have come into being, and I'm not saying that we need half a film with Snoke. And I don't, I'm not saying that we need to have a fully fleshed out backstory, but more than a line about Snoke already had too much influence on Ben. How there's a fair question there about how Snoke was influencing Ben while Ben was under the care of the most powerful Jedi Master since Yoda, arguably. And it's, well, actually the only Jedi Master left since Yoda. You know, like, I think that those are fair questions to have about that character, if you're going to talk about Snoke in specific. Especially because of the fact that they did, in fact, tee it up in The Force Awakens. All right. Well, I guess that's fair. Uh, yeah. The thing is, I want it to be very clear as we wrap up here that I'm not one of those people, and you know this, I'm actually thrilled that you like the film as much as you do. That's awesome. That's great. Okay, obviously you've gone somewhere with it that I haven't, and I don't know if I'm ever going to be joining you on top of that mountain. 
But I think at the end of the day, we both remain Star Wars fans. And if I can make it through uh, being a Star Trek fan, just for the sake of easy comparison, if I can make it through Star Trek's The Motion Picture, The Search for Spock, The Final Frontier, Insurrection, and bits and pieces of other films here and there, and still call myself a Star Trek fan, I I think we're both in a good place still. It's unrealistic to think that every single Star Wars movie is going to be great. I think that's fair, too. But this one is. Well, we'll politely agree to disagree on that one. And if people wish to agree or disagree with you, Mike, where can they find you online? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can also find me on my website, CommentaryTrackStars.com, doing a show called Commentary Trackstars. And you can find me on Trek.fm doing a show called The Edge and another show called Stage 9 with you. That's right. We both do Stage 9, and we're having a blast going through, uh, as we record this, uh, ter- Quentin Tarantino's films because he's attached to Star Trek now because that's a beautiful and wonderful thing and I'm sure that that's going to elicit a lot of good and negative reactions as well yeah uh you can also find me back here on the network with uh, aggressive negotiations with Matthew Rushing and co-hosting uh words with nerds with my pal Craig so thank you very much for joining us um this is Mike thank you for subjecting yourself to my interrogation as it were And tune in next week when uh, the chairs flip and the hot seat switches. And Mike is going to uh, ask me a series of questions regarding episode three and my love of it. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.